0: Before we even start this episode, I have to admit something. I was honestly trying to stay away from this topic that I want to talk about today for as long as I could. Because I felt that everyone does it. But the small voice in my head kept on telling me that it is so interesting. And yes, of course, I'm talking about alcoholic beverages... And talking about how alcoholic beverages are made is really interesting. It is a complex topic, with many facets and fascinating stories to boot. But in order to make this a little bit more general, I will talk about transferable aspects that you can see in many areas, not just in alcohol making. And the first, and to me obvious one, is distillation. Today, I would like to talk with you about how we can distill the essence of a mixture of liquids. My name is Johannes Vogel, and you're listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, my podcast where I explain the chemistry that happens all around us in layman's terms. Chemistry is the study of the attributes and changes that substances can undergo, no matter if they're gases, liquids, or solids. Believe me when I tell you that this happens everywhere around us at this very moment. So distillation, at the end of the day, is actually one of the many techniques to purify something, or better, to separate certain substances from others. The way to separate mixtures out into their component parts is to take advantage of some physical property where all components in the mixture are sufficiently different. In most cases, you try to create a system where you essentially let the compounds in the mixture race along some kind of column or pipe that exposes this difference in a physical property. They... Some run slower, some are faster, and they come out at different times, out of this pipe or column. With distillation, this physical property is the boiling point of a substance. Which, by the way, also means we're talking about liquids and not solids. So that's, I guess that's a no-brainer, but I need to say it here clearly. We're talking about liquids, not solids. Which brings us to the boiling point. In order to understand how distillation works, we have to look a little more at the boiling point, because I'm sure we all know that the boiling point is the temperature at which a liquid turns into a gas, right? Famously, for water at sea level, that would be 100 degrees Celsius, which is also not so famously for me, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, Uh, whoever can remember that. I say sea level because at higher altitudes, water boils at lower temperatures. And that is actually related to what I will say next. You see, our atmosphere exerts a constant pressure on us, quite fittingly known as atmospheric pressure. Molecules of a liquid need to overcome a certain pressure pushing down on them to go into gas form. The energy that the liquid has is expressed as something called the vapor pressure. That would be the force from the liquid that pushes against the atmospheric pressure. So when you start heating a liquid, the energy of molecular movement increases, because heat is nothing but stronger movement of the molecules in the liquid or air. And at some point, this vapor pressure equals the atmospheric pressure, and the liquid, as a consequence, begins to boil. This is the point at which the molecules in the liquid overcome the force that keeps them liquid, and they turn into gas. That is, when the liquid begins to form bubbles. The exact temperature differs from liquid to liquid. To give an example, as I mentioned, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, but pure ethanol only at 78 degrees Celsius. So coming back to water boiling at different altitudes, higher up in the mountains, the air is thinner. There are less air molecules. We know air is a mixture, but there are less of those. Which means the pressure exerted onto a liquid, say a puddle, is lower. Therefore, less energy is needed to bring the puddle water to boil and go into steam. This is a great story, very abstract, and maybe a little hard to follow for some, so let's slow this down a little and discuss this from a different angle. So essentially, all I explained was physically why different liquids boil at different times. Now what if we mix stuff together? Take some water, some table salt, some essential oils, some methanol and ethanol, whatever... Let's just throw it all together. What is now the boiling point of that mixture? You will already find that the salt alone changes the boiling point quite drastically, actually. The true answer can only really be found by experiments, you know, testing it out. With many mixtures, it may actually first appear that there is not a boiling point, but a boiling range of temperatures. You see, the interesting thing here is that even if two liquids have wildly different boiling points, the mixture boils as one. The difference is the composition of the gas. What I mean by that is that there will be a higher percentage of compounds that boil easily versus a lower percentage of stuff that boils at high temperatures. Even if, even if, there is maybe more of the high boiling liquid in the mixture. And that composition that you find in the, in the gas form, as opposed to what you find in the liquid, is actually correlated with the vapor pressure. You know, the, the inherent energy in a liquid to go to gas form. If you were now to let this vapor of mixtures rise up a long column, it would get further and further away from the heat source, and the inner surface of the column or pipe might actually cool it down, at which point the compounds with lower vapor pressures, that means higher boiling points, would condense on the sides of the pipe and trickle back down into the container, while the compounds of lower boiling point would rise higher. And that is the concept of distillation. It isn't a perfect system at all. It is very hard to completely purify one compound out that way. But you can separate the original mixture into so-called fractions that contain groups of compounds with similar boiling points. And that is already immensely powerful. So let's check out how chemists have taken advantage of these facts. A distillation kit may look different from the outside and whether you use it in a laboratory, um, that means a laboratory scale, that is a couple of grams or milliliters, or an industrial scale, which can be multiple tons. I say from the outside, but deep down it is always the same setting really. You have a container with the liquid mixture to be distilled, would be a bit impractical if you didn't have a container. This container then sits on top of a heat source, so that you can heat it, and the container closes up into a neck at the top, so it kinda goes narrow at the top into this neck shape. From that neck, a long pipe, also called a column, stretches upward. The ones that I use in research laboratories were about two to three times the length of the original container but obviously much more narrow in diameter, eh? So, remember the purpose of this column is to separate the vapors by boiling point. So increasing the surface area on the inside of this column is useful, because you give the higher boiling vapors or gases a lot of chances to cool down on the surface and condense again to a liquid and uh, consequently drip back down into the container. So how do you increase surface area on the inside? You let, for lack of a better term, like you you let a little, little finger stick out inside the column made from the same material as the column. So in my case, that would have been glass. This is known as a fractionating column, by the way, and it helps the separation greatly. All right, so far so good. But now that we separated the liquids this way, how do we collect these liquids again? I mean, they're in gas form. Well, for starters, this fractionating column is not open at the top like a chimney. No, at the very top of the column, it is open at the side. So you divert the vapor into another pipe. This pipe will point downwards in a slope, and the walls are usually actively cooled in some form or another. In the research lab, we always used a special piece of kit that allowed us to use water to be flushed inside the walls as active cooling. This pipe is known as a condenser. Because scientists are not marketeers, that, that means it does exactly what it says on the box. It, it, it condenses the vapors back to liquid. The newly formed liquid from condensation then runs down the slope and into a new container. Over time, the container can be changed once a certain temperature has run its course and you've got all the fraction of the liquid fraction that you want. And then you have collected that fraction of the mixture and you do this however often according to your process and how much is still left in the batch. And this is really it. It's a really basic idea, but it's so powerful. The only other important variation to talk about now is the difference between batch and continuous distillation. And that is quite easily explained. Continuous distillation means that there is a continuous replenishment of the reservoir container with a mixture. Whereas a batch distillation refers to a container with a mixture... And once the distillation has run its course, it's done, and there's virtually no liquid left, you stop and refill the container afterwards. So now let's turn to the part that I always enjoy the most, the one where I try to look at real life applications, because this is where the rubber hits the road for me. A process or reaction can be as elaborate as you want. If there's no real-life application, then what's the point? And distillation has many. I will mention one briefly and another one we will look into with a tiny little wee bit more detail. The first application happens on an industrial scale. We're talking multiple tons all the time. And that is fractionating crude oil into its constituent parts using a fractionating column. This process gives rise to gasoline, diesel, kerosene, asphalt, and various reagents that are used to make plastics, pesticides, and pharmaceuticals. So you see, it's kind of important. The second example is one that I have read up a bit more about, namely the distillation of alcoholic beverages, as I mentioned at the introduction. And this one I find super interesting. I watched a whole bunch of videos on YouTube to have a look at what the distillation kits for different hard liquors like whiskey or rum or tequila or bourbon look like. And the first conclusion I came to is that they all pretty much look the same. Just as we described, a container this time made from copper Copper mostly because it is easily pressed into shape. It's an excellent heat conductor. And it actually reacts with some of the gases formed. Namely, the sulfurous ones. You know, the ones that's... If you've ever smelled rotten eggs, you know what I'm talking about. You do not want to have them in your drink. Okay, so copper reacting them out, that that's just peachy. From that container, this copper container, there's a column going up and all the way at the top, the vapors are diverted and collected according to fractions. So really the exact same thing as what we were talking about and surprisingly not too different from each other. And what the liquor makers distill in there also has quite a few similarities. Essentially, human existence can be summarized as such. People settle down, they fulfill basic needs like food, shelter, security from predators and so on. And once all of that is granted, they are looking for a fungus called yeast to interact with the local source of carbohydrates in a watery solution to make alcohol. Obviously, I'm talking about fermentation. So first, let's make sure we survive and now let's get hammered. The step that comes after that is really an extension, because these fermented liquids, be beer, wine, or from sugarcane or even algarves in Mexico, they all never go above 10% alcohol. So to get it higher, you need to distill it. And that is what you do. So you distill the lower boiling alcohol away from the water as best as you can. And with that come the aromas and tasty substances based on the base liquid, which gives the liquor its specific taste and smell. And here, interestingly, the process is never perfect. Because at a ratio of 95% ethanol to 5% water, this mixture always acts like one liquid. This is a phenomenon known as an azeotrope, and is the reason why you can only ever buy 95% pure alcohol. Before I finish off this little rant about distillation, I will leave you with a little party trick that I learned at a whiskey and chocolate tasting. Yeah, you heard right. A whiskey distillery and a chocolatier tried to make whiskies and chocolates that would perfectly complement each other. And believe me when I tell you, it was gorgeous. Absolutely amazing. But that's not what the trick is about. You can check out the different fractions inside a liquor like whiskey yourself. All you need is your hands. It's very simple, and it also uses heat to separate the fractions out. You Put a tiny droplet of the liquor of choice, in my case it's whiskey, into the palm of your hand. And please don't douse your hand in it, okay? Really only a small amount. Then you rub your hands together for a bit, then smell it, then rub again together, smell again, and so on until you smell the same smell twice. For me, whenever I did it, the first time you smell your hands, all you will smell is alcohol, the ethanol part. That is the most volatile fraction. The next two or three times are very specific to the whiskey, I'll be honest, guys, I have not tried this with with rum or something like this, so I can't really say if it works as well. But for whiskey, it works perfectly. It's very, very typical, depending on what kind of whiskey you have, if it's peaty or something like this. So the next times are specific. And then the last one is invariably a wooden, slightly vanilla aroma that you can smell. And then... For me it's always like two or three that you can really smell where you have like the different facets of the taste. It's really quite cool to do. I found that it was very oddly specific those smells and a very cool thing to do with a drink that had a lot of facets to its taste so you can actually subdivide what you're what you're tasting when you drink it. So that's it. That was my little party trick which I hope you enjoyed. Um, And this is also the end of this podcast. So if you have comments or ideas for new topics, please leave them on Twitter under at chemistryandeve1 or write directly to me under chem.podcast at gmail.com. If this was too fast to write down, I left the information as usual in the show notes. Also, if you liked what you listened to, please rate my show on the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks a lot and uh, yeah, take care, folks. You've been listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast about chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. Thank you for listening.